is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? I am excited to get started on this week's episode. Go on. Do you remember last week you you made a boast? No, that doesn't sound like me. You're thinking of one of your many other podcasts. <laughs> and, and it wasn't about the temperature at which you've been swimming either. It was about your specialist subject, if you were to ever be on Mastermind. No, you've got the wrong guy, sorry. Come on now. We asked for help on this. Oh, no. And I have in front of me a a list of questions. How many questions? There's up to 20. We can come on to the the mechanics of how this quiz will work. So 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 my special subject is the 2004 Boston Red Sox, yeah? That's right. Obviously, we can't call it Mastermind because of um, copyright infringement. We don't want Clive Myrie coming after us, do we? No, we don't. I'm slightly wondering whether I can use my phone. <laughs> you cannot. I've suddenly sort of gone blank on, on it. Oh, gosh. Well, you seem very confident when you said it was your specialist subject. It's one particular series that I'm confident on, which is the Red Sox-Yankees American League Championship Series. The rest of it is a bit of a blank to me. If I'm doing badly after 10, I think I might, or 5, I think I might have to sort of, we might have to edit, edit it, all, <laughs> it all out. I'm leaving this in warts and all. So, so we need a name for this, a sort of mastermind ish name um i think in mastermind you get 90 seconds to answer as many questions as you can in, in our version we could have 89 seconds and we call it faster mind that's quite good who wants to be a millie band okay go on who wants to be a millie band i also had egg eds like the tv quiz i feel quite nervous now I f- even though i'm not sitting in a black chair i feel quite nervous well let's play who wants to be a millie band Hello and welcome. Let's meet today's contestant. My name's Ed, and I really wish that I hadn't said on last week's episode <laughs> that this was my specialist subject. And, and what do you do for a living, Ed? Well, I'm a politician. That sounds like fun. Is that always a fun job? Absolutely, yes. It's always very calm, steady, and without incident. And, and tell us why you've chosen this particular specialist subject. I have no idea. <laughs> well, because I, in 2004, the Boston Red Sox reversed the curse of 86 years when they hadn't won a World Series. How long have you been a fan for? It sort of relates back to my dad because I had this term. He was teaching in America and I had this term living, uh, going to school there when I was 12 and I got quite hooked. And then from 2004, they've been, relatively speaking, pretty good. And where were you in 2004? I was in London, but I did watch Game 7 live at three, two, 2 in the morning, I think. Okay, I, I can't bear the tension. Now we've got to get on with it, Mr. Quizmaster. You'll have 89 seconds to answer as many questions as you can. If you want to pass, that's fine. We can come back to them. Should we get to the end of the questions, of which there are 20? One point for every correct answer. It's at my discretion to deduct points for any kind of insolence. Yeah. Ed, from Doncaster North, your 89 seconds start... Now, by which nickname was the 2004 team affectionately known? Um, uh, uh, pass. Which player coined that nickname? Kevin Millar. In late July, the Yankees' Alex Rodriguez slapped the ball from which Red Sox pitcher's hand, setting off a bench-clearing brawl? Goodness sake. Uh, Derek Lowe. Which Red Sox player started the ensuing bench-clearing brawl? Jason Baratek. How many wins did the Red Sox have during the 2004 season? Oh. 97. Who was the female lead in the 2005 film Fever Pitch, also known as The Perfect Catch, based on... Mm, pass. Pass. Name the Red Sox team doctor responsible for repairing Kurt oh, Schilling's please. infamous bloody sock ankle Good injury. sake, pass. Pass. <laughs> Which Red Sox hitter led the league in strikeouts? Manny Ramirez. Arranged the following three players by highest to lowest batting average in 2004. Ellis Burks, Earl Snyder, Cesar Crespo. Pass. What did the Harvard School of Public Health urge the MLB (laughs) to ban following heavy use by the 2004 Red Sox team? Oh, tobacco. Chewing tobacco. Which player wore shirt number 78? Uh, 78... 
Pass. Which Red Sox legend? Oh, and there's time. I've started, so I'll finish. Actually, I better not say that because of legal ramifications. Um, I've commenced, so I'll follow through. Which Red Sox legend threw the ceremonial first pitch at Game One of the World Series? Oh. Carl Yastrzemski. Yes. Well, do you want me to top them up? No, I think that sounded terrible. We got through twelve questions, and you got a total of three right. Oh, my God. 25%. That's not good. By which nickname were they known? The Idiots. It was Johnny Damon who coined that nickname. Bronson Ario was the pitcher. Bronson Arroyo. They had 98 wins. You were so close. I get, come on, you give me half a point for that. (laughs) Drew Barrymore was the lead of Fever Pitch. Okay, I didn't see the film. The team doctor was Bill Morgan. I mean, for goodness sake. That was a real turning point, that bloody sock injury, wasn't it? It was. I remember the bloody sock. It was Kurt Schilling in game six, I think. Mark Bellhorn led the league in strikeouts. Yep. Heisler's batting average was Earl Snyder, Ellis Burks and Cesar Crespo. I mean, none of whom played for the Red Sox, did they? Yeah, they did, but I just picked ones who hardly played at all that season. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> all right, b- because I'm nice, what if I gave you the chance to turn it all around 200 points for one more question? <laughs> okay. Here it is, concentrate. Who, to date, is the only person... That was part of the 2004 Red Sox franchise to have a Dunkin' Donuts drink named after them. David Ortiz. Wally the Green Monster, the mascot. <laughs> okay, well, that is a ridiculous question. Those questions were so hard. Well, Mastermind isn't known for being easy, is it? Well, this wasn't Mastermind, remember? Copyright. <laughs> I just want to say as well, to get the answers to some of these, I had to Mm. enter answers from multiple choice into a website just to be able to see the answers. And you got more than I did. And and I got percentage-wise, I I got slightly more than you did. Yeah, but can I just say, you were offered a series of answers, which I was not. But I wasn't claiming it was my specialist subject. (laughs) No, I agree with you. I, I, I think that is a fair point. Well, after that um, humiliation, shall we shall we just get on with it and talk? I think you're so unfair. Right, what's your specialist subject? And I'm going to do this next week. The Beatles. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you went so specific. I could say the Beatles in 1967. Even with that, you are now saying, I don't mean the whole of 2004. I just mean this one particular aspect of it. I know. Well, look, I'm... I could do the day the Beatles recorded Penny Lane. What, what day was that? You see, I don't even know that off the top of my head. Well, that's not good. <laughs> I'm showing the same kind of hubris that you showed, but I mean, there were so many other questions you could have asked me. Well, I'm sorry you didn't like the questions. I want a sort of judge-led inquiry into this. Right. Shall we uh, talk about what we're going to be talking about this week? Yes. This week, we're, we're tackling a difficult topic, and it's the impact of the climate crisis on our mental health. From the trauma of the effects of extreme weather, like floods and droughts, to worrying about climate change in our everyday lives, there is a growing body of evidence which shows that more and more of us are struggling. And to help us understand why we feel the way we do and what we can do to help ourselves and each other, we're joined by Dr Emma Lawrence from Imperial College London, who has contributed towards research in this area, psychotherapist Steffi Badnarek, and Sasha Wright, who's from Force of Nature, which is an organisation helping young people manage their well-being and create positive change. Great conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful then, apart from showing me up with your quiz? That does take some beating, yeah. unlike you in that yeah, quiz. Yeah, all right, all right, all right, I get the point. My reason to be cheerful, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm regressing. No, you can't regress any further. I've really got into news round. Gene has become fascinated by the news. Yeah, and it's so good. I was a bit of a refuse nick at first just because it's not John Craven's news round anymore. Is it no longer John Craven? No, it's 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 not. He's he's passed on the baton. It's just amazing that that quality of journalism exists for children and that amount of thought how to communicate the news and current affairs to children. And even though they do cover the big stories that you'd find on the regular news, I am not finding myself swearing at the television as much as I do at, say, Newsnight. Is that when I'm on? Specifically, yes. I mean, isn't it amazing? I wonder when Newsran started. Yeah, was, was John Craven the original? 1972. God, it's about to be 50 years old, Newsround. I'll be turning 49 and Newsround will be turning 50. 
one year older than you. Your arithmetic is better than your Boston Red Sox knowledge. <laughs> so what's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, I mean, in keeping with the very positive reinforcement of me that you've done so far on this podcast, I wanted to thank you oh. for continuing your excellent hitting streak when it comes to TV recommendations was you recommended the after party to us. It's a sort of murder mystery. It is, and it's a kind of all-star cast. There's a lot of faces you'd know from various comedies. And episode by episode, it's told from the point of view of the um, particular suspect. In quite a clever way, I think. Do you think watching all these murder mysteries is um, nudging you any closer to going on a, on a murder mystery weekend? Yeah, I'm not quite sure that's for me. I think if I were you, I would enjoy the actors trying not to break character when you walk in. I mean, maybe I could sort of pretend to be one of the suspects. Yeah. Or maybe you could be the victim. Mm, it's true. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, I- I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Emma Lawrence, who is Mental Health Innovations Fellow at the Institute of Global Health Innovation at Imperial College London. Emma, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Ed and Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Can I just start by asking, what brought you to this whole area of the intersection between mental health and the climate crisis? Yeah, it's been a bit of a process, I have to say. I was uh, a neuroscience researcher um, before I joined Imperial and started working in mental health. But one factor that I thought people weren't considering was what is the impact of growing up in uh, a world that is becoming more uncertain, where there's this future threat, this huge uh, climate change threat. What's the impact of that on young people and, and on all of us? And I knew from my personal experiences, I grew up in, in Australia and had seen the impacts on the landscapes that I hold very, very dear to my heart in my own uh, home of the Adelaide Hills. I'd smelt the bushfire smoke in my family's house and was really worried and distressed about what was happening, the lack of action and what was to come. And so I started looking into this and how other people were feeling as well. And that really sort of led me to where I am now. It's something that I've, I've thought about a bit over the years, but only really seems to be over maybe these past 12 months where we've started hearing about the mental health impact of the climate crisis in the news. Remember when Ed was at COP, people were uh, talking to you there about it, Ed. Is that because we are only now seeing research or is it something that's been actively neglected? I think it's a bit of both. So first of all, you know, the climate crisis isn't a future thing, of course. It is happening now and it's been happening for a while, but those effects are felt unequally. So it's been happening more in certain countries around the world um, and maybe less so, for example, in the in the UK to date. And I think as those impacts increase and we're seeing more and more of the direct impacts of floods and higher temperatures and wildfires, you know, I think it's pervading people's consciousness more and more. And so I think we're people are feeling it. That's part of the reason why it's coming out. I think there is more research coming out as well. This is where the discussions are are needing to go because we're all experiencing this. Now, Jeff and I are of a generation where there was fear of a nuclear war. This was very much a sort of 1980s phenomenon. Are there parallels? Is it different? So it's true that many people, particularly who grew up in the Cold War, are drawing that comparison. But the climate crisis is an ongoing threat that's happening. It's continuing to happen. And uh, there is sort of inaction from people uh, in power who could be making the decisions to transform the society in the ways that we need. And so it's a big part of that distress. I guess what, what we're trying to get at with that question is the scale of it. Is it something that we're seeing more at the sharp end of it, where people are being directly affected, their physical environment by extreme weather events? Is it something like when, when we're talking about the Cold War, where it's it's permeating through um, media, perhaps? So there's a range of things going on. So first of all, if you are directly experiencing a wildfire, a flood, a heat wave, 
and the flow on effects of communities, of community breakdown, of lack of access to healthcare, of food and water insecurity, all of these things have big psychological tolls. It's understandable, you know, these are big stresses, potential traumas, and that can translate into higher suicide rates, higher depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse. And that's understandable when people face these things. But what we're hearing is there's also now an added layer where these events, they're happening more frequently, more intensely, but people also know that they might come again. They might come further. What does this mean? Do you move your family? What does happens to your livelihood, your cultural ties to the land? When you experience any form of disaster, the number of people who are psychologically affected are up to like 40 times the number of people physically injured. So this is a huge toll. But it, there's, it's not only if you directly experience that wildfire, if you um, hear about it on the television, if we're starting to learn these impacts, then people respond in a whole bunch of, of ways. We, we could respond with denial, with trying to say, okay, well, I'm going to kind of compartmentalize that into a box. Um, I'm going to try and fight to defend the status quo, or I might feel fear, I might feel anger, I might feel grief. And we all respond when we we hear this news, we just respond in different ways. And it is completely pervasive compared to um, maybe the Cold War and that every system of our society is going to change. And what do we know, Emma, about, if this isn't a, a silly question, what have people quantified a sense of the scale of this anxiety? There has been a lot more coming in the last few years. The biggest study to date was a survey of 10,000 young people in 10 countries around the world. And they found that the majority of young people were saying that they think humanity is doomed, that the future is frightening, and that their daily life is being affected by their worry about climate change. Um, so their sleep, their relationships, their work, their study. So there is some research out there now, but there is definitely uh, more to learn as well. And it's, it's rapidly changing. Was there any difference across those 10 countries with regards to either how those countries were directly impacted by climate change or by the approaches and attitudes to the climate crisis? There seemed to be more stronger negative emotions in countries that were harder hit to date. So the Philippines had the strongest and within Europe, Portugal um, had the highest levels of, of worry and daily life impacts. But also there seemed to be correlations where there was less trust in governments to act. There was also higher negative impacts on, on the young people. We also saw in the UK, Climate Cares ran a study called Changing Worlds. So this is my research and innovation program in this space. And we looked at young people in the UK in 2020 and the follow-on impacts, both around climate change, but also around the pandemic. And what we found was that even in 2020, while young people reported, understandably, much greater daily life disruption from the pandemic, their distress was greater around climate change. So they were feeling more isolated and disconnected by the pandemic, but they were feeling more anger, more guilt, more worry around climate. And particularly, you know, news articles around climate were more distressing than those around the pandemic. And yet they knew less about what to do about climate change than the pandemic. That's really interesting. So what are the implications on that generation? Because I've told Ed a lot about my son, and I think your boys are like, like this, but what's striking with my son is he's only five. And since he started school at four, he's become obsessed with the climate. He can get very angry about anything from finding out that a car runs on petrol to walking past a butcher's shop. And he gets confused as well. He knows Ed works with the climate, but he thinks part of Ed's job is deciding whether to bring back woolly mammoths or not. So it all gets sort of a bit blurred in his head. But on one hand, I feel you know, really pleased and proud that he's concerned and that that is, is taught so clearly to that generation. But then I, I worry about what the sort of long-term implications are. Yeah. So first of all, I, I obviously the listeners can't see, but the way Ed is dressed right now, I can understand why your son would think that he works with real mammoths. He looks like he's, he's, he's it's because I should in, say this, I've just been cold water swimming and so I'm wearing my He's wearing his dry robe. My dry robe. So yeah, so there's definitely an Antarctic woolly mammoth vibe. But yeah, so to answer your question, it's an understandable 
worry and we hear it from parents a lot you know what, what is the impact on on the young people the children and they don't have the defenses that maybe we adults do and so they're feeling these things more acutely and it has been uh said by clinicians that this can constitute sort of an adverse childhood event to grow up with the sort of stress and and trauma of the climate crisis and inheriting that we need to validate these emotions and and it's not just children and young people but of course we need to ensure that that translates into action translates into positive change and not into just long-term trauma and mental health impacts we can create communities of care where we can come together where we're part of changing those systems and we can be more imaginative about the future that we want to live in and we all kind of need to learn from from children in a way you know list, really listen to them what world do they want to inherit and how can we be pushing towards that say a bit more emma about the um support and interventions that could uh, make a difference to people in your view i think one of the things to say is that there's really great interventions that are being developed and at climate cares we're developing and have developed a co-designed um self-guided journal for sort of more individual support and people to reflect and process their thoughts and feelings and what narratives they might want to cultivate in terms of the kind of actions that that we can take to move towards that positive future and that was co-created with young people from around the UK and we've heard that these sort of tools there's a real appetite and a real need for them that's something that we're developing at Climate Cares, but there's other things like the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Climate Psychology Alliance are developing these kind of things. But we need to bring them together in a hub in one place so people can find the right support. The report you published tells us that the provision of care for those with a mental health diagnosis is also affected by all this. Can you say a little bit about that? So the impact on mental health systems is a fewfold. So one is that if there's direct impacts of climate change, that disrupts health systems. So this is shocks to the health system. At higher temperatures, for example, so in heat waves, there are more people going to emergency with symptoms of mental illness. There are also people with pre-existing mental illnesses are more likely to die in a heat wave and feel the physical effects of heat. So there's implications of a range of, of climate-related events. But then more widely, we're seeing that climate distress is coming into mental health professionals services. So we're talking to mental health professionals. We surveyed them last year in the UK and found that there was very significantly reported rising rates of mental health affected by climate related distress. But I guess the point is that this is not a new mental illness, but it is an ongoing stressor that, of course, then has mental health impacts. If we can bring that mental health professional expertise of how we cope with uncertainty and change and grief out into communities, into schools, into all sorts of institutions, we can provide the right support to help people sit with this, grapple with this, and actually think about how we can come together and form the communities that can both cope with and respond to this into the future. We have a, a hypothetical utopia on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, and I, I feel fairly convinced at this point that we could appoint you czar for for mental health and the climate crisis. Thank you, Jeff. So, at the risk of grasping for optimism here, what what would you do? Are, are there win win opportunities for tackling both the climate crisis and improving mental health and well being that could be rolled out? It's a really, really important point that there are win-win opportunities at both a systems level when we think about the system transformations that are required, more green space, more biodiversity, moving more, walking and cycling more, having a more varied diet, including a plant-based diet, better, warmer homes. All of these things have really clear positive impacts for our mental health and well-being. So there's really a win-win opportunity here. But that goes further when we think about the mental health system and building that more connected um, community support is also what will help us be resilient to the climate crisis. Communities are really this place between this sort of individual um, and system level change that can really help our, our mental health as well as our climate action. Dr Emma Lawrence, Mental Health Innovations Fellow at the Institute of Global Health Innovation from Imperial College. It's been really, really brilliant to talk to you thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me it's uh, an absolute pleasure 
We're going to talk now to Steffi Bednarak, who is a senior accredited member of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, an associate of the Climate Psychology Alliance, which is an organisation dedicated to the intersection between psychology and climate change. Steffi, hello. Hi. I am slightly worried that having a psychotherapist as a guest will mean a certain unburdening of our various psychological issues. Oh, bring it on. <laughs> I'm going to charge you afterwards. I think you should. I think that those those charges could really uh, mount up with me and him. Um, so in, in your work, both from kind of a bird's eye perspective with the, the Climate Psychology Alliance, but perhaps firstly, in terms of individuals and therapy sessions, how have you seen the mental health impact of the climate crisis over the years? Mm, yeah. So about five, six years ago was the first time that I had clients start talking about this in a more direct way. But that was actually more like journalists who researched climate change or lecturers who really had to immerse themselves into the um, issue. And then suddenly it really hit home what that means for their personal life, and then for the life of their children. But it was still quite rare that somebody came and explicitly said, I, I need to talk about this. And so we've seen a massive increase in this in the last couple of years, which I see as a good sign that people are waking up to the fact that we're all going to be affected by this. It's quite interesting, the sort of psychological aspect of it. There's something... Maybe you can tell us more about it, about people's ability to disassociate yeah. what the world could look like in five or ten years' time in a way that seems very different when people see extreme weather events caused by the climate crisis unfolding on the news. I think that's one of the biggest issues when the mental health effects of climate change are talked about publicly. The media really focus on climate anxiety, whereas actually I see the climate anxiety part as the healthy response. Um, the unhealthy response is the shutting down. So I talk about this in terms of compartmentalization. And so that means that we can have a very informed conversation about climate change. And then on an individual level, people then go home or drive their four by four um, book their holiday because they feel like they deserve it. And the two scenarios run side by side without causing too much internal turmoil. And I think we also see this on a much larger scale with businesses and staff, but also execs that care deeply about their children, that often care deeply and genuinely about the environment. But something seems to get switched off on the way from home to work where they may take decisions that are not congruent with that. And compartmentalization is, is a sort of defense mechanism that helps to not cause too much discomfort with this. And so we, we see this at national level as well. There's a sort of defense to really being affected by the magnitude of what we're facing. But is, is there a sort of long-term effect between that cognitive dissonance, but the difference between our values yes. and our actions? And that's really troubling, of course. If we keep that going at the point when we can't deny this any longer, the difficulty is then if we're not equipped psychologically to deal with the real-life consequences there's going to be more deflections and that will become more and more irrational. And I think we can see signs of that with the COVID response, for instance. Conspiracy theories, suddenly there are quite um, unusual theories out there. And it seems easier to believe in something that seems quite irrational than it is to really allow yourself to be affected. And so that can take quite extreme forms. And when people are coming to see you about the climate crisis, is it mm. generally that they are presenting with a whole range of anxiety issues of which this is one? Or do you see people coming to you with specifically this anxiety? Both. We see more people saying, I really need to talk about this. It's only just hit home. But I think it's still more common that 
you actually have to listen out to it. So I think a climate psychologist is particularly trained to to hear the wider psychosocial story in, in the individual story. And when people come to you specifically with climate anxiety, mm. I, I, obviously I don't want to be overly simplistic about saying what's the answer, but what is your general approach to addressing people's anxieties on this? Yeah, yeah, good question. That's important, isn't it? Even people who come um, to therapy and say, I suffer from climate anxiety, people are not anxious all of the time. And it's also a really confusing term because it's not just anxiety. It's all sorts of emotions and, and numbness is part of that. So if we are not equipped to deal with these emotions, then the only way we have is to numb. And, and that comes under this same kind of umbrella. And I personally really struggle with the term climate anxiety because it's quite a clinical term. So people who suffer from anxiety, usually they would come to therapy to get rid of this. But really with climate anxiety, this is a healthy response. We should be worried about this. So we don't want to get completely rid of it, but we also don't want people to, to just panic because that's obviously not a place from which we can take the best kind of steps to do something about it. Immediately going into action can look like a really good intervention. However, what we also see is if that's just a way of lowering the level of anxiety, you're just prolonging some level of well, you could call it breakdown. We, we can't bypass the kind of level of grief that actually comes with realizing what kind of situation we're in and that the kind of life that we thought we were going to have or the, the life that we thought we were promised is unlikely to materialize for most of us. So anxiety is unhelpful in a sense because that's associated a lot of the time with giving undue weight, catastrophizing about things that will never come to pass. Whereas this is something that that is happening. And what you're talking about isn't gaining some kind of agency or control necessarily in feeling like you can fix it because that's beyond an individual. Yes. But it's more akin to, to, to mourning, to grief, as you say. Exactly. Absolutely. There is a risk that if we don't have enough support around this and if there's not enough containment of all the irrational kind of feelings that come with anxiety, that we go into a derangement and that's not healthy individually but also in terms of a society. There's a real risk that we hold on to our, our wish to be in control for so long that the only way for realization to hit is is through enormous crisis and then things don't look pretty we were talking to emma about this and and uh, it's something ed and i have talked about with relation to our own children is is there a way of psychologically arming them mm. in the way they think about the climate crisis and what the future will look like so in the climate psychology alliance we say that it's not a good idea to give young people the kind of reassurance that minimizes their feelings. It makes them feel more alone. So the kind of really quick reassurance that gets the issue off the table, don't worry about it, we'll sort it out, eventually comes back and, and is risks undermining the relationship to the adult. So what we advise is that it's better to just listen and to let them know that they're not alone. Say, I'm worried about this too. And I can't make any promises, but what I promise is that you are not going to be alone in this. We figure this out together, and I haven't got the answer yet. We'll do this together. I will be by your side. I think there's quite a lot to struggle with in this conversation, but it's right to be talking about it. And I think uh, I partly think about my own children. One of the things I struggle with is and I guess this is always true in relation to anxiety, how much one calibrates the risk and the threat. You know, in no sense do I want to appear to be minimising the threat, but but I guess it's interesting to get some thoughts from you about how much you sort of calibrate the sense of time and how long it takes to play out and what it looks like in different 
places in the world and, and so on. So I, I wonder whether I heard something around where's the optimism. Is, is that what you're asking as well? Yes, I think I am. I, I think I am asking. <laughs> yes. I mean, if, you're, if one's child said to one, well, look, you know, I'm worried the world is going to end because of cli the climate crisis. Yes. Jeff, help me out here. Do, do you see what I'm driving at? So it feels like maybe trying to differentiate between all hope being lost. Exactly. And the hope of a future that you might have imagined or uh, a continuity of life that you imagine not being realistic. Yeah. But still trying to feel hopeful and like we as a society and as individuals have got some kind of agency about what that future might look like. Yes, and that's really important. I'm glad you, you ask about that. So the kind of optimism that is uh, wrapping ourselves in a bubble is unlikely to work because we just push the realization down the line. That's not just climate-related. I think that's part of um, psychotherapy. Anybody who comes to therapy faces a situation that feels a bit like a collapse of something they hoped for, like a marriage that has not worked out or career or whatever it is. Often people come in a situation of crisis and there is enormous power and enormous also beauty that can arise. There are two tasks really. One is I need to contain so that I don't have the feeling like everything is lost but I also need to allow all of these structures that are not true anymore, that don't work in my life anymore. I have to allow them to fall apart. And in terms of climate change, my perspective is that climate change is so much more than an excess of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's a mindset. And it's a kind of mindset that doesn't quite work anymore. So in order to allow that to fall apart, we need containment. But when I allow that to happen, it feels like this is really bleak or this is really dark. But from that darkness, I'm suddenly on a different ground and I, I start to have a completely different vision, which is no longer completely attached to a certain outcome, but which is able to have a certain level of maturity in the face of um, adversity to not become reactive. And from that place, my action and my agency is going to be much more sustainable. I can deal differently with the signs that maybe things don't turn out in certain aspects the way I want to. So I have that kind of resilience and flexibility to say, it doesn't look great right now, but I keep going. And from that place, I have seen amazing things happen where individuals have shown an energy and, and a maturity and, and a, literally a beauty that they brought, made things happen in a very short amount of time that seemed unbelievable to them at the start. And I think that's the level of action that is a lot more grounded in, in reality. I guess without the level of psychological insight that you're talking about, and this applies probably to organisations and governments as much as it does to individuals, letting go of the idea that uh, it's worth throwing all your eggs into the basket of preserving the version of a future that, that you imagined is hard, right? It is, but also there are so many things that don't work in our culture. And I think we can actually also um, imagine a much better way of doing things than we are currently doing. If we are psychologically prepared to let go of something, it also sets free a lot of um, creativity to, to think afresh. If someone's listening to this podcast and they're struggling with worries about the climate crisis, can we give them some signposts? Yes, there are more and more therapists out there that specialize in climate psychology. Uh, you mentioned the Climate Psychology Alliance. If they want therapeutic support, there's also climate cafes that the climate psychology run where people can come and talk and they can come on a monthly basis or they can just drop in as and when they, they want to. Also, there's more and more businesses that train staff 
in being able to support people, especially businesses that are on the carbon disclosure um, project A list, for instance. I think there's a real waking up that we need to equip people to stay within what we call a window of tolerance, where we widen that kind of capacity to stay with unpleasant feelings and to still be able to act and to be hopeful and, and invest in building something that we are genuinely excited about. Steffi Bednarek, uh, it's been really illuminating to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, to talk further about the issue of eco-anxiety, but more what we can do and what young people are doing, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sasha Wright, who is Research and Curriculum Coordinator at Force of Nature. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. To give us an idea, just to start with, perhaps you can tell us what Force of Nature does and its potted history. We are a youth nonprofit that works at the intersection of climate change and mental health. So our mission is to mobilize mindsets for climate action, which is basically a fancy way of saying that we talk with other young people who are scared pantsless about the climate crisis and then help them to shift this anxiety into agency. So we work with educators, nonprofits and young professionals in business to reach these young people and support them to step up rather than shut down in the face of the climate crisis. And it's been going for about three years. What's the, what's the story behind it? Yeah, so I joined about two years ago. I was the second person on board. And it's incredible to reflect because we've now grown to a team of nine young people. And we have a volunteer network of over 100 in over 50 countries, which is really exciting. Um, But we started really born out of a need a few years ago. So our founder, Clover Hogan, after doing a bit of teaching in the climate education space, really came into this recognition that the threat even greater than the climate crisis is how powerless we feel in the face of it. So our organization actually started with Clover and I running open Zoom workshops to young people just to create a safe space for them to come and uh, chat about how they were feeling about the climate crisis. And what we encountered was this incredible need. That first summer that I was working at Force of Nature, I spoke to over 500 young people, um, all of whom expressed many of the same stories, which were, I'm too small to make a difference, the system is too broken to create meaningful change, our leaders are too short-sighted. And it was really from this recognition that we decided that we really wanted to double down on the support that we were providing for young people. And what kind of responses do you give to those legitimate concerns? You know, it's, it's the most important question, and I've been really pleased to see climate change and mental health meet one another at the forefront of the conversation. At the same time, there is a bit of a damaging narrative that exists around eco-anxiety in particular. Uh, I fear what I see as a bit of pathologization of this feeling. Anyone you ask who's experiencing eco-anxiety, I think would argue that it's not their anxiety that is the problem, but rather the climate crisis that is the problem. And they would really like to see that fixed instead of uh, their feelings. So at Force of Nature, what we've found is that the shift is not from being anxious to not anxious, but rather really channeling that eco-anxiety into agency. So the first step in any of it is understanding and coming into conversation with those extremely rational and normal feelings of fear that we feel when we think about something like climate change. Perhaps you could say to us a little bit about your own personal experience of climate change and how you manage your own feelings about it. So I come from a background in environmental science, and I grew up in Western Canada, just adjacent to the oil sands and also the incredible Rocky Mountains, a bit of a juxtaposition. Uh, And I was lucky enough to attend McGill and learn about climate justice there. I think going into it, um, I had this idea that knowledge would give me power. I thought I would take a class and all of a sudden I would know how to fix the climate crisis. But I remember leaving classes in my second year on crop failure, on biodiversity loss, forest fires, feeling like I was wearing iron shoes. And at that point, I could spout data at you about the rate of boreal forest deforestation, or I could really dig into this idea of being a tree planter at 19, feeling firsthand the futility that comes from planting one tree in the middle of an old growth clear cut in the mountains of British Columbia. And I struggled to reconcile those two things. How could I feel so strongly, but also make a difference? 
But when I was uh, starting my work at Force of Nature, there was this invitation. What if our emotions were actually the thing that made us powerful vessels for change? And what if they were actually the most rational part of our response? And with the stories you hear across the network, can you give any examples of other sort of inspiring stories you have come across in terms of young people's reaction to processing of mental health and anxiety around climate? I would say that the inspiring stories are anyone that builds community. Somebody who I love is Jennifer Uchendu in Nigeria. She started something called the Eco-Anxiety in Africa Project, which seeks to understand and validate the experiences of eco-anxiety and environmental-related emotions in Africans. This is a great example of somebody who is coalition building and building community to invite everybody into the conversation rather than these stories of one person putting their foot forward and breaking away from the pack. And our listeners are always eager to do more. Can you give us a few pointers for them as to to what they can do to help manage their own well-being, um, but also taking action themselves? So the first step is coming into conversation with those difficult climate emotions. There are very few days that I wake up feeling hopeful. Um, It's more about exercising hope as a muscle. But the first step is saying, how do I feel? Um, And reaching out for help and support to make those visible and not such a shameful thing that you're bottling up inside of you. The second thing that we always say is to identify the stories that are holding you back. So stories like, I'm too small to make a difference. Nobody cares about me. The system is too broken to make change. And critically, finding the empowering stories that will allow you to take action. So things like there are others out there who care. If I put my mind to it, there's nothing I can't do. Things that allow you to move forward with that agency. And then the step after that is to take action. Because the more you take action, the more you're able to rewrite that own script in your mind that keeps you in those feelings of powerlessness. We're not always in a position where we can kind of uh, address the problem head on and grab the bull by the horns. I experienced this myself uh, last summer, just really struggling with the wildfire smoke and the recognition of the impact that climate change was having on my own country. And I think you need to sit in those emotions as well and understand what is effective for you to consume and what is not effective for you to consume. So being a critical consumer of media, finding inspiring and empowering stories and finding your community are really important ways to support yourself in that transition from eco-anxiety to agency. Is there something that could be happening from the top down at, at government level in policy? In policy is an interesting question. We work largely with educators because the big question that we often have coming to us is, I want to teach my students about the climate crisis because I think it's really important. And yet when I teach them about it, what I fear is that I'm disempowering them or pushing them towards this kind of uh, despair. So with educators, it's really about um, effective communication with those problems and with the knowledge that they're trying to imbue. From the perspective of policy, I recently went to COP26 and I was lucky enough to be in a few different spaces, including the blue zone where the main conversations were happening. And what was so stark to me was out in the streets and in various community hubs amongst the activists, there was incredible energy and raw emotion. And then you would step into the blue zone and you would see these politicians who were completely buttoned up, strutting around, um, and all of them had an agenda as, you know, you do when you're a politician. Sorry, Ed. <laughs> no, 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 um, I understand. <laughs> I, was, I, I had the same experience going into the blue zone. Yeah, it yeah. It resonated with me. Keep going. Yeah. And and it would be so sterile, the environment. It would feel like it was scrubbed of all of the color and emotion. There's anything I could say to politicians. It's, oh, my God, can you show a little bit of emotion, too? I think that having a little bit of vulnerability as a politician would be incredibly powerful for mitigating the stigma around talking about how climate change makes us feel. So I would really encourage people in the policy space, you know, have a little humanity, show your ego emotion. Do you hear that, Ed? She's talking to you. Great <laughs> note to end on. Really powerful. Absolutely. I want to see you uh, showing your eco emotion. I will. Well, look, Sasha Wright, you are our optimistic voice in this conversation and you have completely lived up uh, and, and flown over the bar that we set. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what did you think? I mean, I just thought it was such an interesting conversation. I came into it thinking we were going to find out that climate anxiety is a, a byproduct or some 
new disorder that has sprung up when in actual fact it's a rational response to it and then the thing to do is to recalibrate and and figure out what you're going to do about that worry yeah i mean i thought there were lots of things that were sort of prompted i think your point about the anxiety being understandable rational yeah and sort of sort of empathizing with it i think is quite important I, I thought Sasha was just very striking about, you know, the idea that driving into action, I mean, using it is probably the wrong way of putting it, but but it helps to give you agency. Yes. Because it's the sense of worry about this that then drives you forward. Now, obviously, it's bad when people are feeling bad. Um, and, you know, I think it, I think it's very good that, to be sort of talking about it because I think it's quite easy for it to be dismissed. Do you know what I mean? I would have thought that a few years ago it might have been dismissed. I mean, I've got to say, I don't find it very easy to talk about it with my kids, for example, sort of talking about their anxieties about it. I mean, I think you were reflecting on this a little bit in terms of Jean as well. Horace, the woolly mammoth, says hello, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, because I find this sort of calibration sort of quite difficult. Yeah. What's the response to the sort of very, very, very bleak view about it? But I guess what we've, I've learned in this is you've got to say, well, look, the worries about it are understandable, but there are things we can do, and and you're not alone. I you're feel not like alone. There's lots you're of not alone. Feel like yeah. That's, yeah, that that's a good advice generally when people yeah. are worried or anxious about something. But I thought it was especially pertinent in this. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. We are, and I wanted to congratulate you on your pop picking skills because um the other night i was flicking through the channels and the brit awards were on yes sam fender yes sam fender who um you anointed didn't you he got the ad thumbs up at some point and now look at him I've, i i often think of you saying that david joseph from universal music said i knew that he'd sort of gone extremely <laughs> mainstream when even ed had heard of him you know the the old show the old gray whistle test yes do you know where the title of that came from no there was, uh, I believe, a caretaker, a janitor, who would be sweeping up the studio. And if they caught him whistling a song that one of the performers had played, then they knew it was going to be a hit in the BBC Music Studios. Are you serious? Yeah. So he was an old grey-haired guy. And if a song passed the old grey whistle test... I think you're, sad, you're making that. No, 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 that's, that's, that's real. I tell you what, when I, did, when I picked Josh Ritter for Desert Island Discs, I had a very nice email or communication from him is he still in touch uh-uh. <laughs> should we thank our guests they were all excellent emma lawrence steffi bednarak and sasha wright emma caution produces our podcast all the research and guest booking is courtesy of joe kenyon at goldfish gail lofthouse is our announcer ed seed composed our music james deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by henry cole he's been throwing the curveballs he's been striking out and these have been reasons to be cheerful join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.